Hello and welcome to Paleo Cinema Podcast 260. My name is Terry Frost and this time around we're doing some Shakespeare and a kind of minor film noir as well, just to mix things up a little bit. The Shakespeare is 1993's Much Ado About Nothing, starring and directed by Kenneth Branagh. And then we're going back to 1952 for a Richard Widmark movie also starring Marilyn Monroe. And that is Don't Bother to Knock, which is really interesting. It's a minor film noir. It's one I hadn't seen before, but I really enjoyed it. So sit back, I'll get the contact details out of the way, and we'll go from Shakespeare to mentally disturbed young ladies. Paleo Cinema Podcast is a podcast of old movie appreciation. There's only a couple of rules here. The first one is the movie has to be at least 20 years old, and that's a rule I break occasionally. And the second rule is I have to find some interesting things to say about it. Uh, feedback's very important to the podcast, so you can offer it a couple of ways. You can offer some at feedbackpaleo at gmail.com. You can go to the Paleo Cinema Cafe on Facebook. And also, or you can send me an owl if you went to Hogwarts. You can even support the podcast by going to patreon.com slash paleocinema and donating as little as $1 US per month. Just be aware with the podcast, I may swear occasionally, so you might not want to let your kids hear it if you don't want them to pick up filthy words with Australian pronunciation. Okay, so how the hell are you? Uh, It's springtime here, and as usual with Melbourne, it's intermittent. We get lovely warm days, and then we get colder days, and we get warmer days, and we get colder days, and the ratio changes as the months go on. But on the other hand, it is spring, so it's not a bad thing for me. Uh, I haven't been doing too much, just kind of day-to-day stuff. I've done some YouTube videos. I did the next quarter of the year for my In Memoriam for Cinema. You can check that out. If you type into YouTube Terry Talks Movies, you'll find that. Uh, that one's an easy one to do because I kind of front-load them, and as people die, I just add to the video. I'm going to be doing the next one, which will be the full 2019 In Memoriam uh, at the end of December, so I can kind of get that done with a few last minute additions unfortunately but uh yeah i think of branching out as well and doing tv and other things but i think if i do that it's going to go crazy in the sense that it'll take a hell of a lot of work but uh, i've got a couple of ideas i've actually got an idea and let me know what you think of this one because i'm going to be doing it for my next video um i've talked before about how one particular movie dario argento's suspiria is a movie that up until now I haven't been able to watch. I saw it when I was about 20, and I saw it at a time when I was going through what used to be called, quaintly, a nervous breakdown, and I couldn't sit through the whole movie. It really did set me off big time and put me in a bit of a decline. I've tried to watch it twice since then, I think. I think, yeah, twice, and haven't been able to sit through the whole lot of it because it just brings up stuff for me. But on the other hand, I think I'm at a place now in my life and at my equanimity when I can sit down and watch it. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about why I couldn't previously watch the Superior and then sit down and try to watch it and then come back to the camera and talk about it some more. So what do you think of that idea? Uh, It's a little bit unusual. I don't think it's something that's an experience that everybody has had. But I'm going to give it a go anyway. I want to try to find different content for the channel and really push myself a little bit because that's been the kind of stone in my shoe for a long time, knowing that there's a movie out there that I can't watch for reasons of 
the trauma of my childhood. So I really want to hit that one and kind of get it going. Might even have a you know, dram of whiskey maybe before I do it. Who knows? I'm not going to put that part in the video because they frown on alcohol consumption on YouTube videos because they're a little bit um, quaint about that. But I'm going to give that a go and, and just see how it goes because I really want to see whether I can make that work for me. By the way, we are following the Richard rule again, thanks to Richard H., our Patreon supporter, who said that I've got to start talking about the actual movies in the podcast at the 15-minute mark of the podcast. It's a rule I negotiated with Richard. By the way, Richard and Ali have invited me over several times for really nice food at their place so um i really appreciate their friendship and their continuing support and i'm going to honor that rule just so i don't piss richard off so that probably makes it time to talk about what i've actually been watching um i binged about four seasons of the tv series bosch starring titus Welliver, police procedural things set in la some nice characters beautiful character development some really nice cinematography as well so i went mad and played with four seasons of that over the last couple of weeks which is possibly why this podcast is a bit late there there is another reason i'll talk about in a minute but i recommend it uh i did say on social media that it's a bit like heroin for middle-aged guys watching one episode of bosch it'll suck you in and addict you to it so amazon prime had it so i just kind of went mad with it until i watched the whole lot basically um yeah spent a bit of time doing that because four seasons even if they're only about eight to ten episodes per season can suck up lifespan at an alarming rate but i enjoyed it and um, i highly recommend it so i watched that let's see what else have i watched i'll just bring up the letterboxed and take a look at that by the way if you hear a noise in the background it sounds like scratching that's me using my mouse on this um desk anyway uh watch forbidden planet which was a lot of fun and uh, i enjoyed that saw the bumblebee movie um the one the transformers movie it's probably the only watchable transformers movie because it steps out of the bombastic bullshit that is michael bay's oeuvre and um yeah it's uh yeah it's much better than the other ones uh possibly because there's a lot of involvement in female writers and uh director and other people like that so it kind of gets away from the guy stuff that really is kind of annoying in the michael bay bromance with himself so if you're going to see a transformers movie that's possibly the one to check out because it's uh worth watching i did also see a movie that's out in the cinema science fiction of course uh ad astra with brad pitt now i've talked about this on the youtube video uh, a couple of things it's slow it's boring it's really bad science and everybody in the movie with a couple of small exceptions mostly ruth negger and natasha leone everybody in the movie acts like they've taken a couple of five milligram valium they're slow and ponderous and the dialogue because it's slow and ponderous some people have interpreted it as being profound but for me it was piss poor and ordinary uh interesting too i saw it in the cinema 50 or so other people in the room and people were fidgeting and, and kind of talking to each other and whispering to each other during the movie's latter three quarters and 
not a good thing for a movie which is supposed to keep audiences engaged. Now, there are a couple of interesting things in it. There's a bit where Brad Pitt falls off the tower. That's in the trailer. There's also some stuff with space apes and space pirates, which is mostly in there to stop the movie just being shots of Brad Pitt doing shit in a very boring way. Um, a lot of people, some people have said they liked it. I did have a bit of a discussion on the medias of social about that, but for me, it is probably one of the worst of the year. It really doesn't do science fiction as a genre justice, and it it's one of those science fiction movies that people who don't like and don't know science fiction make occasionally and just use science fiction as the costume around which they put their quaint little drama about somebody's daddy issues. So I've kind of broadcast pretty well my disdain for Ad Astra. I talked about it on the radio, and I also put out a YouTube video about it. So I think I've said enough about that particular mistake of a movie. Uh, let me see. I did also see a Chinese science fiction action film called Shanghai Fortress, which came up on Netflix. And I'm watching a bit of Chinese science fiction um, it does give me a greater understanding of Chinese culture and Chinese popular culture. But this one is one that costed a lot of money, but it was really unsuccessful, mostly because the leading actor is a Chinese actor come singer who was part of a K-pop band. And he doesn't really act that well. And he's got bouffant hair. He's supposed to be playing a military officer and a soldier, but he didn't get it. He's still got this kind of buffy boy band hair, and they turn it into this weird romance between him and a superior officer, uh, a female superior officer, which kind of goes, it conflicts with half of the movie is kind of a Chinese Independence Day with some really great special effects, great aliens, about which you learn absolutely fucking nothing except the fact that they're invading. Um, a whole bunch of uh, military officers and drones and other things fighting off these aliens as they attack Shanghai, which is one of the last defended cities on the earth. And that's one part of it. And the other part of it is this soppy fucking romance. And it just doesn't blend together. And it isn't done well. And even the Chinese media and critics gave it a, what the fuck, dude? So um, you can check it out if you're a bit of a completist and if you want to learn more about the way that the most powerful society on our planet views science fiction. Or you can give it a miss, your choice. Uh, I did also see, let's see what else I've got there. I did see the Banana Splits movie, which I'm, I'm a big classic Banana Splits fan. I've got the pop vinyls of Flegel, Bingo, Dripper and Snorky. So Banana Splits is right in that cuddly part of my childhood. And then they made a Banana Splits horror movie, to kind of cash in on Five Nights at Freddy's popularity. Uh, I'm not going to say at all, because I don't believe this, that it ruined my childhood, because my childhood's still there. I've still got the guys going on the banana buggies. I've still got Adventure Island and Arabian Nights and the Three Musketeers. I've got the whole lot. I've got the pop music. I've got the um, kind of music videos at Knott's Berry Farm, the whole lot. So the Banana Splits movie actually was a bit of fun. Once I got into it, and um, it was kind of low budget, filmed in South Africa with a predominantly American um, lead cast, though they weren't all Americans. 
but it's kind of okay. It's it's one of those kind of goofy horror films. Lots and lots of splatter. There's some very, very gory effects in there. Funnily enough, female director again, which is kind of cool. So if, you have, if you're kind of on the fence on watching the Banana Splits movie, just go into it with popcorn and a couple of beers under your belt, and you'll be right. It'll, it'll do okay. Um, it really does uh, take it in a different direction, let's say. But I'm not saying that it is at all bad. I think it's what it is. The nature of the film is definitely on the label. Just don't watch it with a six-year-old. Uh, then I went out and saw John Wick 3 Parabellum, and I enjoyed that too. A lot of fun. Mark Dacascos is the main villain in it. We've got all the usual suspects in there. Um, Lance Hendrick playing Caron, the major domo of the Continental Hotel. You've got Ian McShane back again. You've got, of course, the fantastic set-piece action stunt stuff and the gunplay and the whole lot. So it's definitely a movie that takes the franchise and the world of John Wick which is a fascinating world and every movie gives us deeper and deeper iterations of that particular world it works for me the fourth one's coming out I think in 2022 or something like that and I'm definitely going to see it because it's fun it's an action film it's um, got a dog in it which is nice and the dog doesn't get killed so that's a bit of a spoiler but what the fuck but um, I did enjoy John Wick 3 that was worth my time i picked it up on blu-ray and yeah it kind of works now i've got to pick up the pace here because i've got about uh two minutes to go listen two minutes ago so in the shadow of the moon which is a netflix movie a time travel movie which has a slow start but it kind of works in the long part of the film i could see what the script's going for i don't think they had the budget or necessarily the actors to make it really land as well as it might but I, I like the plot. I like the script and the plot a lot more than I like the particular actors in it. Let's just put it that way. I don't know whether it's um, just my perception of it, but I think that had they run maybe the script through one more revision and if they had a cast slightly differently, it would have been a really, really, really solid science fiction film. I think that telling small stories particularly through a medium like Netflix in that genre, is good stuff. I think it's something that can work, and I think that there are a lot of good stories to be told on a small scale, whereas the tentpole movies are always going to be bombastic and operatic and cosmic in origin and cosmic in scope. But having a little kind of drilled-down science fiction movie really works for me. And we're coming up on the 15-minute mark, so now I'm going to play the trailer for Much Ado About Nothing. Forget everything you've ever known about adventure. Romance. Betrayal. And comedy. And discover it all over again. From Kenneth Branagh, the director of Henry V, and Dead Again, William Shakespeare's Much Ado About Nothing. All women shall pardon me. I will live a bachelor. A dear happiness to women. <laughs> She's the sweetest lady that ever I looked on. 
in the world buy such a jewel? If thou dost love, fair hero, cherish it. She shall be thine. Shall I never see a bachelor of three score again? I wonder that you will still be talking, Signor Benedict. Nobody marks you. I cannot endure my lady tongue. I shall see thee ere I die look pale with love. my bad parts did thou first fall in love with me? For them all together. <laughs> Kenneth Branagh, Academy Award winner Emma Thompson, Academy Award winner Denzel Washington, Keanu Reeves, Robert Sean Leonard, Michael Keaton, <laughs> and introducing Kate Beckinsale. The Samuel Goldwyn Company presents... Yay! <laughs> Much Ado About Nothing. Huh? The most romantic adventure of all. There's a double meaning in that. you got to love a really good 1990s Don LaFortaine voiceover in a trailer for a movie. It's a, it's a good one, too. <clears throat> Not fond of the music in the background. But the um, the voiceover kind of works for me. Yeah, uh, so much ado about nothing. Of course, it's a Shakespearean adaptation. I think it's the first movie version of the play, though I could be wrong. Let me just double check in order not to be wrong. Uh, let's see. No, it isn't. There was a silent version in 1913. There was an East German film in 1964. And... The first sound release in English was, of course, the 1993 version directed by Kenneth Branagh, starring Branagh, Emma Thompson, Denzel Washington, Keanu Reeves, Richard Bryars, Michael Keaton as Dogbury the Constable, Robert Sean Leonard as Claudio, Imelda Staunton as Margaret, and Kate Beckinsale as Hero the Ingenue. There was a Hindi version in 2001 called Dil Chata Hai, which was a loose adaptation, in 2011, Joss Whedon did a filming of it, uh, released in 2013. Uh, and there's a 2012 film version of the 2011 performance in the Globe Theatre. And there is a version in 2015, a modern movie version of the play, called Messina High. Because Messina in Sicily is the place at which the movie and the play is set. There were any number of um, television adaptations as well. There was a version in 1973. The New York Shakespeare Festival did one, and it was filmed. Uh, 1984, there was another one uh, on the BBC did. And in 2005, the BBC adapted it again with Damien Lewis and Billy Piper. And there's a modern retelling on YouTube, Much, nothing much to do. Uh, which is set in New Zealand, so I'm going to have to check that out on YouTube. So, yeah, it's a light, one of the lightest Shakespearean plays, as the title might indicate. Uh, the, the title is actually a, a double entendre as well. Much Ado About Nothing is a kind of homophone 
of noting the nothing is a homophone about noting which is a an Edwardian slang term or an Edwardian word for gossip scandal or false accusations against people so when they say much ado about nothing it could also be interpreted as much ado about slander and slander is one of the main themes in this particular um, Shakespearean work. Now, in the movie, uh, we've got Benedict, played by Kenneth Branagh, who's a nobleman in the court of Don Pedro, played by Denzel Washington. Uh, Benedict's an arrogant guy and vain, but he's good-hearted, essentially. He's witty and sharp, and he crosses verbal swords, at least, at the start, with Beatrice, the daughter of Leonardo, who is the governor of Messina, and whom the soldiers of Dom Pedro, the court of Dom Pedro, goes to stay for a while. We also get Robert Sean Leonard playing Claudio, who is uh, a friend of Pedro and Benedict's, and who falls in love with Hero, played by Kate Beckinsale, who is the daughter of Governor Leonardo. We then get Keanu Reeves playing Don John, who's Don Pedro's evil half-brother. There's always an evil half-brother in things. And Keanu Reeves doesn't do badly. I mean, I don't think he's up to the standard of some of the other actors in this one. But he gave it a go, and I think that his arrogant Don, Pe- Don John really works. And Don John, of course, being a pun as well, because Don John is very similar to Dungeon in Edwardian speak anyway. Uh, we get Richard Bryars playing Leonardo, a character actor, who also appears in Kenneth Branagh's Henry V, which I've talked about on the previous podcast, 198, I think it is. Um, Michael Keaton playing Dogbury, the local constable. Now, Michael Keaton's one of the comic characters in this one, Dogbury, the constable. He uses malapropisms and he's dumb, but he thinks he's smart. He's got a couple of henchmen, and ultimately, more by accident than design. He solves the crimes and misdeeds that occur during the film. We also get Imelda Staunton as Margaret, who's Hero's um, waiting gentlewoman, it says here. And she's good in this. Brian Blessed turns up as Antonio, the brother of Leonardo. And Brian Blessed in anything is great. He was really good as well playing one of the lords in Henry V, the um, Brenner adaptation of that. We also get Ben Elton playing um, Dogbury's partner. And we get Felita Law, who is the mother of Emma Thompson, playing Ursula, who was one of Hero's other gentlewomen. So, yeah, um, the movie is beautiful. I've got to say that first off. It's set in Sicily, but filmed in Tuscany in the summertime uh, in a very wonderful villa uh, on a hill. The landscapes are fantastic. The sets are locations rather than sets and right from the very start we get a beautiful sense of hot summer days and people enjoying themselves uh it really is a movie that is joyous in so many ways and emma thompson and kenneth brenner have never been better together i think than in this film they have done other films together dead again being one of them of course and they were in henry v though emma thompson's role as the um French Princess is very much a minor kind of afterthought after Agincourt and all those other things occur in there. Uh, of course, they did break up after um, Helena Bonham Carter and Branagh got together. And, yeah, but uh, broke up one of the great 
kind of acting partnerships of the 1990s. Though I have seen them in earlier um, things as well. There's a stage adaptation of Look Back in Anger with Branner and Emma Thompson in it, which I like a lot. It really does kind of work well. If you can find that maybe on YouTube or by some subterranean means, I recommend that one as well. So this movie was released in 1993. Budget was $11 million. It made $36 million at the point at which it made $36 million. It was the most successful Shakespearean adaptation of all time. Just let me check something here because I'm not sure whether that's entirely correct. So, yeah, this is obviously interesting for you just to hear me tapping on keys here. But there is another adaptation of which I am exceedingly fond. Yeah, it is the most successful. I was actually looking up Forbidden Planet, which is, of course, an adaptation of Shakespeare's The Tempest. But it's nowhere near as successful. So anyway, here's what happens during the movie and the play. Um, Benedict and Beatrice joust against each other. You could tell that they're kind of attracted to each other, but their um, wit and their natures make them clash. Everybody else knows that they're good for each other. And Don Pedro and Claudio and uh, Leonardo conspire to get them together as happens in this kind of a play. Meanwhile, the ingenues, Claudio and Hero, fall in love. But in the meantime, Don John, the evil half-brother, decides that he is going to slut-shame Hero, even though she's virtuous. And by getting one of his henchmen to romance Margaret, the um, waiting gentlewoman, and letting him Claudio see it from a distance and his hair is very similar so he assumes with the assistance of um, Don John's henchman that that is actually Hero rather than Margaret who is getting seduced by one of Don John's henchmen um, Claudio being young and naive and, and pretty stupid in some ways goes ballistic the next day when they're about to have their wedding and helps, with the help of um, that lie, slut shames Hero. Hero is obviously stricken. Uh, Leonardo is angry with his daughter but also listens to the counsel of the friar and kind of realises that something's going on here and that the slut shaming isn't actually true with the help of Dogbury, the constable, who accidentally almost finds the henchman and gets a confession out of them about the situation. They conspire to get the couple back together by stealth. And part of this, because it's Shakespearean, is that Leonardo says that Hero died of shame. She killed herself and is dead. And that in order to... And she was innocent as well. He tells them that she's innocent. And in order to make it up to the family, Claudio has to marry Hero's cousin without ever seeing her and also has to sit vigil over her tomb the night before this wed arranged wedding to Hero's cousin. Now, not knowing this is true, Claudio is actually going to marry Hero herself. And they kind of because he's slut-shamed her, they're shaming him in equal measure. 
which kind of works. Meanwhile, Benedict and Beatrice are conned into falling in love. But when Hero's um, slut-shaming happens, Beatrice implores Benedict to kill Claudio in order to expunge the shame from her family. So they're all these, one romance is destroyed by rumour and gossip, the other by the need to wreak revenge about the rumour and gossip. Now, the interesting thing here, and there's some great gender flow, ebbs and flows in this movie. The great thing here is that Benedict doesn't believe that hero was untrue. He's the one man at the start of this whole incident who doesn't believe it and refused to be part of that um, kind of activity. And I like that. I like the fact that he's, you know, even though he is vain and bragging and arrogant, he does have the perception to see truth where it is. And that kind of works. And Brenner plays it beautifully. Um, him and Emma Thompson are just marvellous, jousting with each other and going through the different changes of emotion, the changes of attitude that are required by the parts. Costume is great too, the kind of cotton dresses that the women wear and the various um, uniforms that uh, Don Pedro's people wear and the kind of scruffy hand-me-downs that uh, people like Dogbury and his cohort have. Yeah, it kind of works. It's fairly simple costume, except for the tunics and um, of the soldiers. It, it really does work well, you know, whose side everybody is, which part of the ensemble they're from. And, yeah, it, uh, it is really sharp stuff. There's also some really nice direction, too. Brenner is very underestimated as a director. I'm looking forward to his second... Hercule Poirot movie coming out after Murder on the Orient Express, which I did enjoy a lot, um, which is coming out, I think, next year, hopefully. Uh, Murder on the Nile, so it's an adaptation of that Agatha Christie story, but that's to one side. In this one, I, I like his character a lot more than I like his Henry V, because Henry V is a bastard in a lot of ways, not, you know, like, legally. But he's attitudes are of their time much more than Benedict's are. Benedict is one of those characters that kind of ages well from Shakespearean times. Yes, he is a bragging guy who's dismissive of women, but the narrative in this one is really interesting and complex because the song that sung during it, Sign No More, says that men are the inconstant sex and that women put up with it. Whereas Benedict's attitude, which is somewhat tongue-in-cheek in the way it's portrayed by Branner, is of the, the other opinion that um, women are the inconstant ones and that men um, are better off without them to a certain extent. I think most, most of that, and the way that Branner plays it, is that his tongue is very much in his cheek when he says that. But um, it, it kind of works well the sexual politics more than in a lot of other Shakespearean adaptations is pretty much something that's not going to piss us off from our modern sensibilities mostly because of the joy the actors have in what they're doing and the way that the women and the men are on equal footing as far as the narrative power that they have and that kind of worked well for me and yeah, I mean that that subject matter too of 
false rumors about the virtue or non-virtue of women being spread by malicious parties is a theme that's going to stay, unfortunately, is going to stay contemporary for a very long time. And it works. I mean, this movie, if I had a list to say 20 movies that are joyous and wonderful and will always lift your spirits when you watch them, this movie would definitely be on that list. It really does have a vitality to it. And it shows the love of Shakespeare that clearly the ensemble have. And one of the other bits that kind of makes it work, and Henry V works well with this as well, uh, Brandon's very good at this, is even though it is in Shakespearean language, which is rich and redolent with metaphor and kind of sly puns and all sorts of other things, and unless you're paying attention 100%, you're going to miss some of it. But he makes that um, Shakespearean dialogue accessible partly through couple of tweaks on the wording but not very much but mostly through the acting and the attitudes of the characters as they're saying the words even if you don't quite get all the metaphors and some of the language seems a little bit obscure you can get the gist of it quite easily and you can follow the thread of what they're saying with very little difficulty it's more a matter of tuning your ear to the language and for me it takes about three or four minutes while I'm watching any kind of Shakespearean adaptation to tune my ear to the language and kind of slip into that it's almost like a dialect of English which I suppose it is but it it kind of works and it's a skill worth picking up if you haven't already if you haven't tuned your ear to Shakespearean language I think you're going to be missing out on a rich vein of culture and I was kind of thinking about Shakespeare in the context of culture a little bit while I was watching this as well in that even though the English brag about Shakespeare as being an English writer and playwright and and dramatist and satirist and all sorts of other things I think that he is for me at least being on the other side of the world even though my ancestors came from that benighted little island I think that, well, at least some of them did. Uh, I think that for the most part, Shakespeare is a global gift. I don't think any particular nation can take credit for Shakespeare. His works have been adapted to a whole bunch of different cultures. And like other great works like Journey to the West and the works of other writers from all different cultures, I think that their gift to us is not a gift of national pride i think it's more a gift of human narrative tradition and that we really should kind of accept that and not use it as an excuse to support our particular tribe i think that's the last thing that we should do with something as important and something as good and kind of interesting as shakespeare i think that um he is owned by the world and yes there are going to be works of his that are problematic from modern context like Othello and the Merchant of Venice and other things there are always going to be those things and there are always going to be stuff that doesn't sit quite as well to the modern mind as it did in the time in which it was first produced but again this is something that has come up in the podcast a number of times 
you've got to accept that the past has a different culture. Yes, it may have been more fucked up. It may have been racist. It may have been sexist. It may have been misogynistic. It may have been antagonistic to people from other parts of the world. Nonetheless, we once you accept that, there is a point at which you can take, you can acknowledge that, you can recognize it and identify it, but then you can take the stuff that's good out of the particular work and embrace that with that acknowledgement of the fact that the past is a different country. But having said that, this particular adaptation of Much Ado About Nothing has very little that is offensive. If anything's offensive, it's the fact that I'm not there eating all that great food and drinking that wine and swapping witty sayings with all of these wonderful people that we find in the narrative. And I also think that in these times where things can be difficult and we've got existential threats that pop up at various times, be they blonde guys with comb-overs from New York, the threat of a minor gas in our atmosphere overheating the planet. With all of those things that we've got to deal with, we've got to deal with the sexism, we've got to deal with extremism of all kinds, we've got to deal with the research of the Nazis. We need movies that bring us joy. We need movies that are fun but don't insult our intelligence and are fun in a way that's not at the expense of any particular group of human beings. And as, you know, maybe over the past five years, I've grown to really love movies that are joyous in various ways. Yeah, I can fully enjoy and fully get an experience from a movie that's a horror film or a serious drama or anything like that, but now and then... I kind of need the holiday that is a joyous movie in my life. And Much Ado About Nothing is definitely one of those. There are a whole bunch of others. You know the ones on me. Young Girls of Rochefort, Anya's Vardas, Cleo from 5 to 7. Um, Prince do joyous movies really well. Amelie, for instance. Uh, there are just so many of them that really do kind of give rest to our hearts when we watch them. And Much Ado About Nothing is definitely one of those films. It's worth revisiting, and I really enjoyed it as well. I did also watch Henry V again, but then I looked it up and realized that I'd already talked about it on a podcast, so that was a totally wasted effort, and I had to find a second movie for the podcast. And having said that, I'm now going to take a break, and when I get back, Don't Bother to Knock is going to be the movie that, of which I'm going to speak. Um... Starring Richard Widmark and Marilyn Munro, directed by Roy Ward Baker, um, based on a novel called Mischief by Charlotte Armstrong, which was published in 1951, so it was very much a contemporary movie at the time in which it was made, or based on a contemporary work at least. So anyway, I'll be back soon and we'll talk about a 76-minute film noir starring Marilyn Munro, which kind of works. I'm the guy in 821 across the court. Can I ask you a question? Well, I don't know. I suppose so. Are you sure you want me? Yeah, you're the one I want, all right. You doing anything you couldn't be doing better with somebody else? If you want. Does that mean come on over?
stepped into that room, I ran smack into an adventure you don't forget in a long time. Because the screen has never shown this kind of woman before. The kind that reaches out in the loneliness of the night to a stranger passing by. I should have seen the warning of danger in her eyes. But what happened in that suspense-filled night was about to change my entire life. Why didn't you tell me you were working here? I'm not. I'm just doing it for tonight. Yeah, I know. You're an heiress. Tomorrow morning, you ride through your estate. Side saddle. She made you say that. I believe in a drink, a kiss, and a laugh now and then. I still like to laugh. But not at myself. What do you want? Hearts and flowers forever and ever? Love? Don't be afraid to say it. It's not a dirty word. I can't figure you out. You're, you're, you're silk on one side and sandpaper on the other. I'll be any way you want me to. Why? Why is it so important? Because I belong with you. Pat, it's 8.09. I'm frightened. I think something's happened. You all right? Yeah. I never used to have much time for Marilyn Monroe as an actor because the roles I'd seen her doing were the kind of cute, sexy roles, and I really couldn't see it. She did seem like a very stunning woman. If you have a look at her in um, Asheville Jungle, for instance, she's sex on wheels in that one, but I saw her in a couple of her later works where she was playing somebody a little less nuanced like uh, gentlemen prefer blondes and things like that. They just didn't work for me. But the more I see of her work, the more I see that even though she was stunningly beautiful and, and obviously had a kind of sexy persona, which worked really well, I think that inside her was an actress who would have been really good in a number of roles as she got older, had she had that opportunity. She died at 36. Had she lived and been given the opportunities, of course, she would have done some fine work. And in this one, you can kind of see it in the first part of her kind of struggling to get outside that pigeonhole in which Hollywood was going to put her. And I kind of like that. I like the fact that she took on a role like this, which even though she is playing a character who is physically quite attractive and to a certain level... um, kind of psychologically attractive as well but at another level is somebody who's suffering from a kind of extreme form of mental illness and the movie does acknowledge that as well mostly through the character of Jed Towers played by Richard Widmark. Now we don't see Nell the character played by Marilyn Munro at the start of the film very much we see her with her uncle uh, played by Elisha Cook Jr who's the elevator operator at this posh New York hotel he gets her a gig He's, he's come to she's come to live with him and he gets her a gig uh, as a babysitter for a couple the Joneses played by Lorene Tuttle and Jim Backus yes Thurston Heatherford yes Mr Magoo Jim Backus in one of those earlier roles that he did as a character actor uh, 
uh, probably around the same time as he was in a TV series called I Married Joan, which has another name. The people who worked on it, because the um, actor, well, the actress playing the lead character in I Married Joan, Joan Davis was really hard to work with. She had an alcohol problem and a whole bunch of personality issues. And people, including Bacchus, who worked on that TV series, which went from 52 to 55, called it I Married a Cunt. <laughs> that was what it was known as by a lot of the people working on the series. But anyway, Jim Backus is in there, not in a great role, but he does it pretty well. Both Widmark and Munro were heading towards the peak of their careers as well. Widmark had uh, just done Pick Up on South Street. He'd already got himself famous playing Tommy Udo in Kiss of Death. And he was, you know, a good, honest, leading man. He did a whole bunch of really interesting films in the 50s, like The Cobweb and Run for the Sun and The Trap. So I always liked with Mark as an actor. He kind of worked for me. He had a, a kind of everyman kind of persona that really worked. Once he got past Tommy Udo and Kiss of Death and um, also playing Jefty in one of my favourite movies from the late 1940s. Roadhouse, which is, and I won't hear anything to the contrary, much better than the Patrick Swayze Roadhouse. This one also is the movie debut of an actor who went on to have a long career and to marry one of the great um, film directors of the late 20th century. And that, of course, is Anne Bancroft, who married Mel Brooks. Now, Anne Bancroft in this one, she was 21 at the time, plays Lynn uh, Leslie, who is a nightclub singer. And Jed, the character played by Richard Widmark, has been going out with her and was engaged to her. And she's just left him a letter saying, it's not working, we're splitting up. He goes to the hotel to talk to her. And we get a really nice young um, Anne Bancroft miming to a bunch of different songs, but doing it kind of well and showing us some of the potential she had it as an actor as well there's she's only in a few scenes which kind of works and uh we do see her singing um to a few different songs um how about you manhattan there's a lull in my life um chattanooga choo choo and a couple of other things so it's in the background and we also hear the woman who's doing the real voice of course on the in-house radio in the hotel rooms at this hotel because they pipe the music through from the nightclub downstairs up into the rooms if people want to listen to it, which is a kind of nice thing. Maybe it actually happened in hotels at the time, but it's a kind of nice thing to have one of the audio channels on the radio built into the walls of the hotel room giving you a live feed from the nightclub downstairs. Now, Lynn's a mature character. She's, in fact, some ways much more mature than Jed is. The reason she doesn't want to continue the relationship is that he's a cold fish. He likes to have some fun. He likes to have some drinks. He likes women. And he wants to kind of keep the relationship at that level. But Lynn wants more. And because of her emotional maturity, decides to break it off. So Jed goes up to his hotel room. And across the air shaft, he sees a hotel room where um, Nell, played by Marilyn Monroe, is trying on the clothes of the wealthy woman she's babysitting for. She's made the kid go to sleep. And we all through this early part of the movie, we see little indications 
that there's something not quite right about Nell. Part of it is the way Elisha Cook Jr.'s character treats her and um, kind of is a little nervous about getting her this gig and he wants her to do the right thing and not make any mistakes. And then he comes up to the room to check on her and finds out she's wearing the earrings and um, the robe of the wealthy woman and he kind of gets her, tells her to take it off. He's got to go back to his elevator. So we get him coming in and out at various times during the narrative, ramping up the drama just a little bit each time he comes in there. And again, it's it's um, a nice little role. Elisha Cook Jr.'s... I've never seen him in anything where I didn't like him. Well, yeah, maybe, I don't know, uh, the Gunsel in The Maltese Falcon, perhaps. But even then, playing Wilma the Gunsel, he's kind of watchable. So Widmark sees the woman and knows which room she's in because there's a um, chart of the rooms for the fire escapes on the back of the front door of his, his particular hotel room. And he goes over there, decides to have a drink and just see what happens. He's kind of thinking about her as a rebound girl. And she you know, kind of encourages that, and she's receptive to that. She's very attractive. And what he doesn't know until after they start snogging is the little girl wakes up and comes out from the other room. And he starts to realize that she's not the wealthy woman he thinks she is. But in fact, is this somewhat damaged in some way babysitter? But yeah, Jed's horny and he's got a chance to sleep with somebody who looks like Marilyn Monroe. So he's obviously going to let his dick lead him to a certain extent. He comes back to the room and kind of sees that she tells him the kid's gone to sleep. But actually what she's done is tied up a child in the other room. She's also pretty much dangled the child out of a window, which has let some people across the way see what's going on and try to get the hotel detective to deal with it in some way. So we get this slow collision of all these different things happening. And it comes to a kind of interesting climax. It's not an action climax by any means. Uh, It's not that kind of movie at all. And a lot of people in reviews have said that the energy leaves the movie as things come to a head and Nell gets hold of a razor blade. She's already got some scars on her wrist from previous suicide attempts. She was engaged to an airman during World War II who was killed and she obviously went into a deep depression and attempted to commit suicide and had been institutionalised for a number of years before she came to New York to try to start again with the help of her uncle. So I'm not sure how this movie would have played to audiences in the 1950s where people were a lot less sympathetic and understanding about mental illness. But the movie kind of plays it down the line, down the centre. It doesn't make judgments about Nell. The things she's doing and the situations she creates are an issue. But there's a certain sympathy that the movie evokes for her as a character. This was seven years after the end of World War II, and there were a lot of people with a lot of damage from that particular conflict, not only soldiers, but the people they left at home and people whose lives were changed by the death of loved ones during the war. So the movie plays it kind of well, from our point of view, about that particular issue. And interestingly enough, one of the things that uh, Jed does that's kind of a little bit different for that particular time is he goes down to the bar at one stage 
and tells Lynn about this weird woman he's met and the situation that's happened there and talks to her about it. And she listens and kind of goes, okay, well, yeah, men are men to a certain extent. She's broken up with him. He obviously still loves her and was looking for a rebound thing. She's kind of emotionally intelligent enough to understand that and to accept it at a certain level. And it's only when things come to the crunch and there's a confrontation with Nell in the lobby of the hotel where she's attempting suicide and is kind of really on the edge and a lot of people are tut-tutting about it and kind of making comments. And Jed stands up and really gives them shit for giving her shit. And that's the point at which Lynn understands that Jed is a man who has empathy. It's just that he doesn't necessarily show it. And that his ability to defend this woman, who is expecting to just have a role in the hay with, but once you know, kind of backed off on that once he realised that she was somebody with a lot of issues and a lot of problems and that he would be contributing to her damage should he continue to kind of continue that what was about to start she understands him and they kind of have a reconciliation and that's kind of an interesting approach for a movie in the 1950s to make where mental illness was seen as a character weakness and seen as something that people should just toughen up and handle and the whole narrative of this film goes contrary to that thread that goes through a whole bunch of different Hollywood films at this particular time. It's a movie that is sympathetic to her as a victim of circumstance and a victim, in some ways, of history. Even though this movie is touted as a film noir, in a sense, Nil is the opposite of a femme fatale. The person she's fatale to is herself. She's kind of self-destructive, rather than outwardly destructive the way that a classic film noir femme fatale would be. The movie does kind of lose some energy towards the end as things don't go the way we expect them to as film buffs. We expect there to be a big confrontation. We expect maybe she's going to kill the kid, maybe she's not, but the kid's going to be seriously damaged. Um, What are the parents going to do? All that kind of stuff. But it comes to an ending that's emotionally satisfying the more you think about it. And that kind of worked for me. I think that, again, it's one of those films, and I've talked about this a couple of times before, there are some films that play better now than they did at the time because they're ahead of the cultural game and that their attitude to certain problems in society is more complex and nuanced than we got in a lot of other contemporary films. So this kind of worked for me. Even though it's not a great film, it's not the best film in the world, it does have that energy loss. And I think that Roy Ward Baker's direction isn't quite up to what it might have been. Originally, it was going to be directed by somebody entirely different, Jules Dessin, the guy who went on to direct Rafifi three years later. But he got blacklisted. And so they went with this English director, Roy Ward Baker, who did any number of good Hammer horror films and other things in the 1960s. But I think he doesn't give us the pacing and the energy that we would have gotten from Jules Dassin or somebody else who would have found some interesting angles to put on things, who would have found ways to tell the story that maybe had some more complex camera setups. Now, the, it's not to say that the film is badly shot. The director of photography is Lucien Ballard, who was a great black-and-white director of photography. But 
it just does. You know, the pace, something not quite right on the pacing and the way it was done. It wasn't a big budget film at the time. And Widmark and um, Munro were just kind of reaching that peak and were still under contract to the studios. So they couldn't have too much input into that themselves. But it kind of worked for me because of that complexity of character that we see in a bunch of different people. We see it in Lynn. We see it in the uncle, played by Elisha Cook Jr. I should give that character a name. Just give me a moment to look that up for, for a sec. Um, his name is Eddie Forbes. So, yeah, we've got complex characters in there. We've got people who act the way that real grown-ups would act. And even Nell, in her way, um, she doesn't telegraph her illness. It's done in a subtle and paced way. It takes us into it rather than just slapping us in the face with it. Really does work as a small film. Well, 76 minutes, you're not going to be wasting your time if you watch it. And it just shows that even in early days, there were little bits of film that said things in a way that we can sympathise with in a modern context. It's worth checking out. So anyway, that's about it for this time around. It's time to knock, knock, knock that naughty clock that says it's time to go. Uh, thank you for listening. And um, I'm going to be back next week with a Martian drive-in podcast. One of the movies I'm going to be doing is Body Melt, the Australian horror film from the 1990s, which is a lot of fun. Uh, anyway, look after yourselves in the meantime. I'm going to play you some music after the credits as well. Something a little unusual and surprising. I'll throw something in there. But anyway, um, thank you for listening. You can go to patreon.com slash paleocinema and throw me a dollar a month toward the costs of the podcast and the YouTube channel if you'd like to. And if you don't, that's okay too. But I'm going to start creating some content exclusively for Patreon supporters. So now's the time to get on board with that if you're going to. I'm going to do a couple of podcasts and a few other things which only Patreon supporters will get access to for, let's arbitrarily say, six months. So anyway, look after yourselves. Watch some good movies. Watch some bad movies. Step outside your comfort zone, and even if you get mocked by family members for watching a certain thing, just go with it. Watch the Banana Splits movie, even though it's not necessarily great, but is a little bit tongue-in-cheek fun. You know, just expand your horizons a little bit. Anyway, I'll be back soon with something else. In the meantime, here are the credits, followed by a nice piece of music. The credits, of course, honour the Patreon supporters who throw me pocket change in order to help the podcast out. So take care of yourselves, and I'll catch you soon. Oh, yeah, I haven't updated the Patreon credits yet. So, Rich Chamberlain, you are one of the supporters of this podcast in so many ways over the years. And you will be on the credits as soon as I get my ass together and get them updated. Here are the credits for Paleo Cinema Podcast and Martian Driving Podcast, done in the style of movie credits to honour the people who support this podcast. Thank you to Tom, the focus puller, Sarah, the special effects technician, Ian, the caterer, Grant, the technicolor consultant, Claire, the script doctor, Gary, the prop master, Morris, the musical director, Jan, the dialect coach, Arm and our key grip, Matt, the rattlesnake wrangler, Elaine, our scientific advisor, 
Julia, our casting director, Chris, our camera operator, Christopher, our gaffer, Miss Jane, our wardrobe mistress, Tansy, our foley artist, Alyssa, our location scout, Mark, our second unit director, Paul, our special makeup effects director, Tammy, the donut wrangler, Tim, our New York unit director, Rabbi Steve, our spiritual advisor, uh, Steve Sullivan, our director of monster effects, Dylan, our goat wrangler, Eric, our set security lead, Richard H, our set photographer, Mark D, our extra, and David L, our extra, Kerry H, who is the accountant, and our newest supporter, Gary J, who is a CG effects technician. So thank you very much to all of the supporters of the podcast. We really appreciate you dipping into your purses and helping out with the podcast. Thank you.